0: everyone welcome back to the left page today Yay. we have a very special episode uh with a very special guest yeah. as usual yeah. i am frank your man of history bruno beside me virtually my friend and man of letters and today yeah. all very special we are collaborating with roy from the marxist poetry podcast roy welcome <laughs> thank you so much for
1: doing this it's good. i think it's gonna be a lot of fun
0: Oh, I have no doubt about it. <laughs> Part of our mission statement, doing good literature, historical, political work, but fun.
2: Yeah, for sure. So actually, who was the person who, sorry, who was the person that decided on this
0: book? It was Roy? It was Roy.
1: Yeah, maybe nice. maybe I can do a little bit of background on the book since yeah, like, how I learned would love it. it. Yeah, so no, go I was... for it. Yeah, so I was reading one of Alan Wald's books about the history of the proletarian uh, literature movement in the 1930s to like the 1960s. And I came across uh, Guy and writings. And, you know, I was just looking him up, just looking around, and I saw he had this novel, The Werewolf of Paris. And I don't know, everything I just read about it um, from that book and a few other things I saw made me think, I should really read this book because it was, you know, a number one type bestseller in its day and really defines the werewolf genre and yeah. it's of course from a communist writer in the 30s so it just seemed really interesting to me and i got an audiobook and yeah <laughs> here we
2: are yeah nice perfect
0: just some background we've been trying to get to fix this episode around our schedules for quite some time and yeah. let me tell you it was worth it <laughs> So that's what we're going to be talking about. The Werewolf of Paris by Guy Indore from 33, 34, I believe, not mistaken? Yeah. And (laughs) just a a little bit of how we're going to do this because there is a lot. Uh, So we're going to basically go chronologically best we can over the story and approaching its various aspects and then, like, at the end, going over it all so basically an expanded version of what we did last time where we did a very extensive workaround with the events in the end of eternity yeah. in this case uh doing it more taking time by time with the various times and moments of the story so who wants to start talking about the story <laughs>
2: i mean maybe I, i'm afraid to mess it up so I don't know if Roy wants it or Frank wants it.
1: Uh, I could do the... So, first off, the important thing with this novel is that it's has, like, a, a frame, which is that there's, like, an American guy in Paris. I think it's supposed to be, like, present day. So, this is, like, he's in Paris in, like, the 1930s or something. And he comes okay. across, like, a, a manuscript of uh, basically some, like, court testimony, I think, from one Amar Galliez. And that is how he comes across this sort of werewolf trial during the Paris Commune. And then from there, we go into uh, some further backstory. Uh, Maybe one of you want to get into that?
0: Sure, I'll go for it. Basically, it is this modern contemporary American Going over this variety of documents and stories, and basically building a timeline that he tells us. So, aside from the prologue itself, where we follow in this guy in present day, uh, it's all in the past. And yep. we start actually with uh, a medieval story, even yep. about two noble families, uh, the Pitavals and the Pitamons. Uh, two opposing families who with castles upon each side of a valley. If I am not mistaken, yeah. And sense. they they were always plotting against each other and the like. But eventually, like, uh, due to time passing and feudalism sort of going in its various throes and things not going too well for them, uh, they sort of were withering out. During one of its, the last real uh, assassination plots one of the pitavals i believe uh infiltrated the pitamon castle to assassinate uh everyone he is caught and imprisoned in well uh not simply the dungeon but the oubliette yeah, uh, which yeah. as bruno quite happily translated it is like uh i said
2: in portuguese like this but it would be like the
0: yeah, like uh, literally like the place to forget, or like the forgetting, yeah. it, it's something of, like that. The, so like, literally... like the
2: forgettable place, basically.
0: Yeah, so you throw him there and you forget about it. That's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And th- in order to sort of punish this Pitaval, he is f- fed poorly, he's only fed raw meat, and then he starts howling. Uh, eventually when the castle is sort of like sold and the the family moves out, they, they find the man and uh, release him. We don't know much more. But basically that's where it all starts with a noble prisoner who is fed raw meat and starts howling at night and becoming animalistic.
1: Yeah, and then from there we uh, begin to meet, we begin to have the Sort of main story, which is yeah. the beginnings of the main story, which is um, Amar and his. Uh, do you remember what what was his? Um, was it was his aunt. What was his aunt's name? Yeah, it it was
2: Madame Didier. Or
1: yeah, that's it. Yes,
2: yeah, that's it. Perfect. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So he, so it's Amar and Madame Didier in Paris, but they're like. Kind of like landed gentry from, I think, s- southern France. So mm-hmm. they, so they also have this these these ties to this sort of rural town. And one day they get like a young woman from the town sent to her sent to her care, like as like you know, additional housekeeping help or whatever, something to that effect. Yeah. And so on, like the very first day she's there, she the Madame de Bia sends her out to like run an errand and. You know, it starts raining. It's a it's a dramatic type scene like that. And while uh, while she's out, the errand is you know to get pick up some holy water from from the priest. And while there, she meets the priest from one of those two families, from a descendant of you know the werewolf family, uh, Pitaumont, uh, yeah. at the at the church, and he uh, rapes her. And that's basically the origin story for what will become the main character, um, her son Bertrand.
2: I I liked how you how you did uh I thought you were going to elaborate and then you just said like the 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 moment of the the worst thing that could happen like <laughs> But yeah and and then in, in this uh kind of uh, after this this incident and the whole situation after she's raped, she's, she actually uh gets pregnant of the of the the priest well after this she madame didier and and the other people that live in that house start talking about how uh, Josephine which is the girl uh maybe she's possessed by a demon and maybe something completely bizarre and then amar actually Sort of falls in love with her because she is with this like seduction, possessive power. After being, being impregnated with this werewolf priest, (laughs) it's getting it gets really complex. (laughs) Yeah, and what what comes after? So they uh, so Amar uh what what did you said yesterday right about the the plan of of amar to to yeah, well,
1: well we can't get into amar yet. he hasn't really been introduced but i think maybe now's a good time to introduce him he's um yeah yeah so we have the the wealthy madame didier who's like uh, you know like a probably a lower member of the landed gentry has an apartment in paris and like a, in a state again in, in the south of france and then she has her her nephew, who is sort of a Republican at this point from the failed revolution of 1848. So the, the, his, his aunt, who's one of his few surviving relatives, is, you know, very, as, would, as the Holy Water story would suggest, she's a very conservative Catholic woman, and he's a very anti-clerical Republican and, you know, partisan yeah. from 1848. So, you know, he, he's, he's going to go on a journey over the course of this novel. And what's important here to point out too is that because this this young woman get, that gets sent to their care from you know their their local town uh, gets pregnant from a Catholic priest, this is obviously a huge scandal to them. So yeah. they then proceed to do everything in their power to cover it up, because you know for for several reasons, but a lot of them are related to you know their their, their perceived like status or their perceived class, and they wanting mm-hmm. to protect that. Yeah. So from here on out, they're just all in on on. Protecting the secret, and yeah, I mean, do you want to jump in, Frank or Bruno?
0: But uh, sure, uh, yeah, it's very, it gets very intense very quickly, and this it, it shows quite a lot about how, and it's an interesting trope like this of like the wicked priest, really, and. Yeah. The way he, he even in that scene, which we don't get too much of a description, but he sort of becomes like half-possessed to sort of signify even sort of weirdness and powers of the, the werewolf that we don't know much about. But what, what follows is exactly that. Like, no one ever really learns the, the truth about Josephine's, Pregnancy. I don't. They make up a husband that sort of left and ran, and yeah. what that only Madame Didier and Emma know the actual story. Yeah. So yeah. It, it becomes, and that's like the key to how the, the werewolf of blood sort of spread in that way. Uh, it's really, it's interesting that, that Bruno brought up possession because that sort of comes about a lot of the time of how the werewolf actually is uh that's something that we we all forgot to mention in our pre-recording talk uh, which is fine but is they define it in two ways which is two souls inhabiting one body or two bodies inhabiting one soul if i'm not mistaken and those being like the wolf and the, the human and how yeah. it's a sort of internal duel, and at times one is winning, at the times other is not. And while again, that doesn't really work out to take away responsibility, but we'll get there, it's it does from the very beginning, we're led to believe that like, the werewolf's violence isn't really intentional. Uh, yeah. which, again, it varies, but it's still an interesting point.
2: It's sort of like a bestiality. Like, it 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 kind of gets to a, a a way with the story and with when Ammar is trying to find Bertrand. Uh, when Bertrand goes to Paris, which actually is chronological, the thing that happens after what we were talking about, and Aymar gets this kind of uh kind of aura, kind of. Uh, things that he does in the book that it, it, it's kind of a shift like uh, I was talking of earlier as well like how this book is uh uh basically like a, a a Bram Stoker's Dracula of werewolves and and like in this book there are lots of moments where there is this sort of characterization and and ways of uh talking about one character uh to make that that character like shift inside the story uh, it's it's the case with Josephine and with her, with her possession it's the case with Amar which in the start was like uh against um the church and things like that and in the end he's basically like uh, a a re- religious extremist like uh, and, and you're getting this sort of different vibe of certain characters by what they 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 tend to be uh, represented in the story.
0: Yeah, like um, what happens next is that we get to uh, before we actually even get to Paris, we're still in southern France. We we figure out that uh, Bertrand was being born under like. Uh, very auspicious uh moments and times like he was born in on christmas i believe
2: Uh... yeah he was conceived at a time that uh even madame didier said oh most most religious people uh don't even have sex at those times because they don't want to risk to have a, a son in the same day as as jesus was born
1: yeah, and he was conceived and born during like a, like a rainstorm. Yeah. It, it was a literal dark and stormy
0: night both times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting what you remember, Bruno, because we get a lot of different point of views along the story. And what follows next is a very... Uh, uh, Bruno was telling me this during his read, and I kind of agree. That this is the more, this is one of the more annoying bits of the story because yeah, the signs like his he's got a lot of uh, hair on the top of his hands and uh, he seems very weird. Uh, the the child run yeah. uh, which we know is a werewolf pretty much, considering the the father, the name, and all. And what follows is the hunter's story of finding and putting down the, the wolf of the village, of which there weren't that many anymore, or any at all, any at that all. was killing yeah. sheep.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, and he shoots, so he shoots the, he shoots what he thinks is a wolf, um, but then the next morning Bertrand wakes up in bed in great pain, and Amar, of course, discovers that there is a silver bullet lodged in his leg from the night before, yeah and in a, in, a, in a theme as we discussed previously uh amor immediately pockets this bullet and hides you know and proceeds to cover it up uh, immediately
0: yeah which he regrets half half of the time he regrets hiding it half of the time he's like, no, no that was what i should have done there wasn't much better to do so you know a lot of ambivalence from Amar. but yeah, yeah again another cover up because the, the, the hunter was like, oh, I'm going to do the silver bullet to, to take him down. And then, then, like, no bullet was found, but we, we found a culprit and the, <laughs> the killing stopped. What follows then is Aymar basically imprisoning uh, Bertrand in a very literal way. But he also, like, tries to figure ways to sort of balance the curse with, like, feeding raw meat and whatnot. But then then things go all right. You want to talk about that, right? (laughs) Sorry. Oh,
1: yeah, it's no problem. So Bertrand was on, like, a career path here. He was supposed to become a doctor, which I think is another interesting detail. So, yeah, so he's on a career path to become a doctor in this small town. So that means he has to go study in Paris. And, you know, obviously a kid growing up in this small town, he was very much looking forward to this. And some of his friends eventually go off to Paris and meanwhile he's just been locked in this room uh, as a result of that incident and a subsequent incident so he he eventually manages to escape through um, the help of his mother who feels bad that he's being in prison like this and who I, at this point has not figured out that he's a werewolf so, jo- so Josephine basically unlocks the door for him and he and this is sort of a nighttime escape, so he turns into a, a werewolf, rapes her, then flees, and kills one of his classmates who's also trying to get to Paris at the same time. And this is where the story kind of moves from sort of Amar, um, like sort of a a, a tale of a, of a young boy slash werewolf growing up and Amar keeping an eye on him, to... Amar tracking, like, basically the police reports of very gruesome murders that, you know, obviously a werewolf would produce, as in, you know, the the victim was torn, like, their throat was torn, and, you know, bite marks and that kind of thing. So he... So that's how we get into the next phase of the story, I think.
0: Yeah. What we were discussing is that we kind of separate the story in three or four large ways, like, three in Paris, which is, like, this... Before, like, this... Imer's investigation, and we have a couple of different stories of gruesome murders in graveyards and desecrated bodies. Then we have um, the Paris Commune basically taking off and everything that happens alongside of it, which is a very story-heavy moment. And then at the end, what what happens to uh, Bertrand afterwards? Uh, So this is like, well, There's a lot of story before Paris uh, or the story of the werewolf of Paris. This is when we actually start getting into sort of the meat of the story and things really do pick up a lot because we quickly go from a couple of different stories and false accusations and people being caught in uncomfortable situations of like being accused that happens even before or, or like the classmate that they're trying to uh, accidentally sort of killed someone else is uh, falsely accused and then they later uh, stay they're sort of shunned from the place and imprisoned but then they're released and then they like take their own life and then someone is falsely accused in one of the murders committed in paris so there's a lot of something that were very clear off it's like yeah, there's the murder, but someone ends up paying the prices for that. So yeah. it's much more than just, oh, there's this violence that the workforce produces. Like, no, we, the, the, the violence is much further. It has ripples beyond the, the killing itself, Yeah, which I find very interesting.
1: Yeah, and all the ripples, I think, landed at the feet of basically poor French people the like the story of the the person who kills the schoolmate is i think just like a young man who's like aspiring to get married and that ruins his proposition uh his his position there and then one of the other stories is like a coachman who you know just was sort of lucks into some money from one of his uh passengers and then when his passenger is killed they just assume he murdered him and took it so yeah i mean that's part of this i think that's part of the build-up here too
0: yeah, totally, totally. Uh, Bruno?
2: Yeah, I maybe I was going to say actually as well for you guys to start on the 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 part about the the commune because I was talking to Frank as well how I read this book. Like this part is really story heavy, and I think I will probably uh, mess up the the chronology of things. So I'll be glad if you guys can do it for me.
0: Oh, but again no worries it's fine <laughs> yeah i can bring us up to speed to on like the the history uh, just uh, the before yeah. and the the actual yeah. thing if it's fine for for everyone yeah yep okay so these things are very sort of closely and directly connected really but we have before the, the paris commune what made the conditions much stronger what we have like the the failed revolutions of like 1848 and spring peoples and all that but and then we have sort of the re-establishment of uh, the empire we have napoleon the third of france and which leads us in 18 the late 1860s early 1870s the franco-prussian war which is a basically a, la- a very strong massacre uh, on the French side, the, the the Russians crush them and take the region of the Alsace-Lorraine, which ends up being very crucial later and and a point of a great deal of contention for the French. It, it's interesting. We we think about the rivalry between the French and the English, but at this at this latter half of the 19th century and well into the 20th. The, the rivalries between the French and the Prussians, later Germans. So after the crushing defeat of the Franco-Prussian War, the National Guard, basically the army, which built up by common people and just peasants and the like, especially urban people in Paris, uh, they refuse to stand down. And what happens is the establishment of what we know as the Paris Commune they refuse to stand down like no we we we. why are we going to go back to the shitty conditions of our lives before we became soldiers yeah. and then sort of the we have the establishment of the commune and the idea of like trying to build something different so the, the commune has a lot of different stories and a lot more than we could ever talk about in yeah, exactly. uh this podcast but, but it, it to anyone who's interested, the commune is also like the first major photographed historical event. So there are dozens and hundreds of pictures of the commune as it took place. The establishment of barricades, the key locations that they held, and yeah, it's a a fascinating, beautiful, horrible, tragic story as they mostly go. And just to sort of Go over a bit like post-commune, so we can focus back on the commune. Uh, with the defeat of the commune eventually and the re-establishment of the, the the French government, we also have a great deal of the conditions that prepared after the end of the Franco-Prussian War for what end up becoming World War One, with the expansions of the colonial empires and this established rivalry between the French and the Germans so a lot of what ended up happening later on with the world wars was founded or had its major key players beforehand yeah the
2: pre dlc that we were talking about
0: (laughs) yeah that's the prequel yeah and but anyway that is basically to sort of make it as clear as possible how the communists deeply connected to what happened before and deeply connected to what ends up happening with the national governments taking control and what ends up creating the conditions for world war one and then world war two and so on and so on
1: yeah and i feel no i just want to say real quick i feel like it's important to say too that like this was like an incredibly violent conflict even though the prussians did kind (laughs) of roundly defeat the french they were suffering like hundreds of thousands of casualties, which I think most people imagine as kind of a world war one kind of phenomenon when that starts, but no, they were, they were doing it. And, you know, there's also several massacres involved with the Paris commune um, perpetrated by the sort of Royalist forces. So I think that's also like an important detail here is how violent this conflict was. On-
0: oh, Absolutely. Like the, the, the commune, the, the the fallout of the commune was brutal. And uh, we'll definitely get back to that. But it's the, it, it's called the bloody week, the, 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 the final throes of the Paris commune and the, uh, the actual invasion and approach of the royalist forces, uh, greatly helped by mostly... The, the other French forces from around the country so that there was a real movement of troops arriving in Paris from like the countryside that ended up against the, the commune itself so the matter of like the, the urban, the urban uh, working class and the poor rural working classes against each other how it unfortunately ended up turning out but to a level that the royalist forces did perpetrate a massacre that was as it could never be on par with anything the Commune did, or even could have done. So, we'll get back to that, but yeah, we, it's, it must be said that, yeah. exactly.
2: Yeah, so maybe we should talk about how things end up to Bertrand, and do a little summary, or do you guys want to talk about everything before we talk about the ending?
1: Uh, maybe we should just do a quick summary to make sure we we didn't lose anyone. Yeah. yeah so yeah. It, so it's like we we begin the story with an American in Paris, and he's found basically an account from the Paris Commune of like a werewolf murder, and so he's sort of reconstructing the the events of this novel for us. And the in the text, he's basing it off of, are mostly from one Amar Galliez, who is sort of the guardian of the the werewolf like from childhood and how this like began how the werewolf came into the world is you know that we have two sort of noble families in a long-standing feud one of the members basically gets tortured into becoming a werewolf it's kind of implied and one of his descendants then becomes a priest in paris where he meets a young woman from the country josephine who he rapes and ends up impregnating with Bertrand who becomes the main character and because this young woman is in the care of Amar's family uh, they proceed to cover it up and basically we have a, a few chapters of like the, the upbringing of Bertrand, the werewolf child by this sort of, by his mother and this family that is sort of responsible for for this like situation so Eventually, of course, this is where we're picking up. He escapes and runs to Paris. And this is where we're at now, I think.
0: Yeah. Perfect. We, we need to get you more on our podcast for summaries. That yeah. was very, very good. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I just wanted to make sure. I realize this is, good. This is a complicated story. So I feel like we have yeah. a couple of those to make sure everyone's on board.
0: Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah. So we're at the Paris Commune. Basically, we have two different trajectories. We sort of split up, Aymar uh, and The Bertrand meets a young, uh, young noblewoman. She's like the heir to a very rich family. And they end up falling in love and having a very sort of strange, interesting, deep connection that I think we can explore soon. But to sort of draw the, the main story, they end up becoming a couple and the the bond that they establish, like he, we, we don't know exactly when that takes place, but she learns or Bertrand tells her that he is a werewolf and that he needs like fresh blood or fresh meat to survive. So she basically offers herself and her own body in sacrifice, like giving her own blood to Bertrand so that he stays under control, which helps with him staying uh, undercover and not identified by Aymar, who is co- constantly trying to find stories and keeping a lookout, but they disappeared. There aren't really any stories about it. But he accidentally bumps into Bertrand uh, during the Commune and he's like, no, I- I- I'm I'm in love. I'm, I'm with someone and I- I'm all better now. It- it's fine.
1: Yeah, and that's another junction where Aymar is like, he finally finds Bertrand after all this time. And he's like, all right, it seems like it seems like maybe he sort of talks himself into it. He's like, you know, maybe maybe love can cure everything, guys. Maybe maybe it's going to be OK. And so he talks himself out of once again doing something about Bertrand in his mind. So he he basically decides, you know, what, this is this is actually I'm just going to keep an eye on it. It's, it's Maybe and see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah he definitely does, <laughs> yeah well, I feel
1: like we have to introduce this this other subplot, so his his yeah his girlfriend uh sophie is was basically previously in a relationship, and I should say too that Sophie is also a major character. There are at least one or two chapters told from her perspective, yeah, yeah. and first to characterize her some she's sort of like a very rich child who she's i think she's 17 or 18 at the time of the story and by now bertrand is not much older than that i believe so she's sort of you know a young woman who's grown up in this sort of rich bubble and she sort of craves any like in a very like sort of modernist ennui sense she sort of craves any experience and fantasizes about death and this is before meeting bertrand so we have her and she has this sort of um fancy lad boyfriend named Baral who writes, you know, just entirely over-the-top letters to her describing her beauty and how much he's in love with her every day. Like he Every day, every night, he sits down and writes her another letter to just. and he, this is described in the book, he tries to come up with new metaphors to describe her beauty.
3: <laughs>
1: and so, what ends up happening is, yeah, basically, she she's like, no, you know what, I'm in love with this other guy. I'm in love with this other guy. So we have Baral, who turns out to be a spy for the Versailles, Versailles troops, being, you know, being cucked by the young werewolf. And and this is also again why this is relevant here is Amar actually becomes aware of Bertrand's new like sort of uh place in Paris through Barral. He sees he sees Barral and Sophie like getting out of a carriage together. Barral's of course a gentleman and like seeing her off to to <laughs> to uh Bertrand's place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh good, right. yeah, I'm sorry, but it is very funny, so we have um <laughs> him being chivalrous and- and Amars oversees this scene, and he sort of approaches Baral and they try and get information out of each other regarding the uh, young werewolf Bertrand, and you know that's one of the I think interesting scenes in the novel, these two, I don't know, just uh just sort of ineffectual men. Uh, trying to get information out of each other and just being very <laughs> withholding.
0: Yeah, it, it's so funny at the end of that scene that like they both leave dissatisfied with, with what little they learn. No one really happy with how it went.
1: Yeah, uh, and this could have been a decisive scene. This could have been the end for the werewolf. But because Amar is being so guarded and because Baral is also being so guarded, we end up with Bertrand still on the loose
0: yeah but and, and just because it's so funny like um sophie makes boral like you're not going to hurt him okay like you write me the letters okay i still care about you but i don't want to be with you i never showed you much more so you know sorry <laughs> uh, but promise me you're not gonna hurt him and like so boral is knowingly cuts and like yeah i will have my revenge someday <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and so that's so that's sort of we're sort of like halfway through the commune at this point with you Mm -hmm. know tension building we have um Bertrand on the loose with Sophie they're they're madly in love and they've also you know vowed to each other that like if anything happens to either of either one of us we're going to like we're going to kill her so we're going to commit suicide and so I guess this is where the next uh, stage of the plot comes in
0: yeah we then have like a very lengthy, uh, which is interesting, I guess, uh, description of like some of the later events of the commune. So an execution of various prisoners, uh, which include, if, you, if you're keeping up with the million characters, uh, one of victims of the ripples of one of the werewolf killings, which was the coach driver who stumbled onto some money. And he's because they're releasing the prisoners, but they're gonna execute him. So we have that. We have references to Corve and the taking down of the the column, the Vendôme column. And we, as we are approaching, like the the royal troops sort of coming into Paris and sort of break, breaking in. Uh, Bertrand sort of loses control. He's like, no, if I stay, I'm going to hurt Sophie. I, I can't. I need, I need to go. And he yeah. sort of runs off and he, I think he assaults an officer or something. He doesn't do... Uh,
2: when he says he, he, he isn't able to, to stay close to her, I just said it was like Twilight vibes.
0: Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, they, 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 they must separate. Yeah. And, and then, like, Bertrand splits up from, from Sophie and they, they don't run into each other again. And, but since he assaults, like, an officer, he's put under arrest. And that's when we have the document that sort of started the original American narrator's uh, finding of a particular text, which was yeah. Ima's testimony and sort of elaborate treaties on the werewolf and the importance of the 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 church's combat against the supernatural which is that's a that's a, that, 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 that's a very powerful and not that great in the it, it's very interesting writing like what what has become i must stance, like socio-politically uh, what he stands for and the way he sees and opposes the werewolf
1: yeah cuz at the trial basically the like sort of brief he submits to the judge who is who's his friend because you know Amar was a a revolutionary in 1848 so he has this he has friends high up in the sort of commune government or you know com- whatever you want to call it <laughs> so you know he's friends with this judge and s- sends him over this brief and the brief is basically like, we need to burn Bertrand at the stake immediately. And he sort of include like there's passages in there like, oh, you know, when you, when you really think about it, there haven't been any witches. So maybe burning witches at the stake was actually a good idea. We should, we should do that here with, Am- we should do that here with Bertrand right now. And, you know, the, the judge being his friend, and this is being a very anti-clerical time decides, you know what, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna actually read you read the quotes that you wrote but i'm going to make them mean the opposite but what we get here is basically at this point we have Amar has come full circle from his uh 1848 days where he was sort of a republican sort of like a a, like a radical intellectual and basically because like in a series of like a chain of events from um, the rape of josephine by the Piedmont priest we end up with Amar as a result of that rape becoming like a devout Catholic who wants to burn witches. And I feel like as Bruno was saying earlier, this is like a, like a fascinating and I think all too familiar trajectory for a lot of, a lot of people, both like at the time this was being written in the 1930s. And also I think in some ways today, kind of scary turn of events. Yeah.
2: It's like, it's like this, this quality of, of being uh, sort of like maybe getting lost in this, uh, as you said, like this extreme, uh, not philosophical, but uh, academicist academicist way of thinking that goes beyond reason and starts to go in, into this sort of extremism about philosophy and about religion and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, in a way, no, thinking about it is like uh, such a, a loss of like the... Um, the references that you'd have to interpret the world and, and the like and you, what do you end up finding structure on on this millenary institution and set of beliefs that have stood it, it really literally stood the test of time and at times that can take many forms like uh i am I said this before <laughs> i'm a catholic myself but i am definitely a very different brand <laughs> Catholic than uh, Bertrand ever is. Uh, so it, it can take different forms, like even along the 20th century in the U.S. and Canada, in the U.S. and Canada, that I know some more about, you have various trends of leftists that end up either like having a sort of religious upbringing and then leaving it away and then sort of returning or not, and, or others who take a sort of middle ground or a, a, an opposite approach and like have these various um political beliefs and then end up like complaining them with the religious and then abandoning one with the other so while it is a very <laughs> i think what is distinct about trans trajectory is that it's from very different and very intense extremes so it is from a sort of uh strong republicanism and that was really radical like that was, oh you
1: mean you mean amar
0: oh yeah 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 totally i, I confused the name sorry thanks right but you go literally from a very radical position of like republicanism against napoleon the third against the french empire and then like sort of changing that position and becoming so clerical during the french commune of all times and places so it, 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 he really does sort of come full circle, which is a like very weird and from extremes.
1: And I mean, you can see reasons for that too, because yeah, as we're saying, he, he has this he has this sort of secret he's trying to protect, and in a lot in a lot of ways, like Bertrand is sort of this like I'd say Amar is kind of the main character of the novel, um, mm-hmm. but Bertrand is kind of the subject that he's studying. And yeah. the studies lead him to, you know, lead him from where he was in 1848 to where he ends up in 1871, and you know, the the reason for that has a lot to do with sort of, you know, the the guilt and fear of hiding the secret, but also a desire, I think, to protect his uh, his family's, you know, social position.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, Mike. It it makes sense because I'm is trying to. The the difficult thing a lot of the times that like he sort of has a point like the werewolf becomes uncontrollable, like he he literally even because what happens next is that the the court, the revolutionary court of the commune sort of finds him guilty, but finding him sick according to. Imar's uh, testimony who finds him to sort of this uh, prison hospital wing thing, uh, yeah. where he's supposed to be treated and cared for, And but he has sort of these bouts of rage and the like. Uh, but he's apparently okay. Yeah. And, and, and in the moment we can get to like, what ends up happening to, to Bertrand and a couple of the other characters. But the the, the thing is that he Bertrand really does even if while he's trying to or his attempt to be kept under control when he's younger before he goes into Paris or by himself or with Sophie he does lose control so while it is Imer's position is huh. very extreme like he, he really does defend like the burning of the witches and the literal burning of Bertrand there, then and there yeah. even so he has the point that like the werewolf ends up being sort of uncontrollable uh even against bertrand's own wishes which is very sad and very frustrating because the the social reflection that we end up seeing and that and that's i think it's a good segue into the ending is that there are no attempts at like coexistence and understanding or or, or assistance there's just like the subjugation this control and Quite interestingly, we end up, we end Bertrand's uh, story as he's led into sort of uh, a mentalist institution of uh, the late 19th century, which is a literal nightmare with a beauty facade, beautiful facade. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and in some ways it parallels the oubliette from the beginning.
3: Exactly.
0: Oh, definitely. Like we we start with. A trapped nobleman, and we end up with the, the trapped werewolf, which was the nobleman. So, uh, it, it, we do begin in prison and end, or rather, not in prison, we begin with an oubliette and end with an oubliette.
3: Exactly. Uh, Bertrand
0: is, oh, not Bertrand. Yeah, no, Bertrand. Bertrand is put there literally to be forgotten, even by Aymar. Like, at one point, Aymar is like, Yeah, no, I, I'm not coming back. I think I think if you're being fussy, you're being annoying, and it should be noted that while Bertrand is visited in, well, he's literally imprisoned and caged in a very brutal, he's lashed, he's tortured, because he ends up lashing out, understandably, against his captors. He also is drugged whenever he goes out to visit, to visitations by Aymar. And Aymar gets angry, that's like, oh, wh- why are you being fussy about this? Why are you being annoying? You should talk to me and whatnot. And I at one point, it's like yeah no i'm I'm going, I know I know you're being cared for, I know you're nice here yeah, there's no reason why you need to be annoying, so goodbye, so Bertrand is literally sort of forgotten and yeah. placed there to be forgotten, much like before he was the original werewolf was in case to be left behind
2: yeah, I was talking uh to Frank the other day about uh, about this moment. Where it I got sort of like knowing the the fame of these first like mental institutions when Bertrand went to when he was like basically incarcerated and and went into this second ubliette. I thought a lot about uh the ending of 1984 as well like this this prison that that you know that it is more like a, a torture than a prison itself.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting too, like with the institutionalization, you know, this like, like Frank, Frank was saying, like, I think Frank was saying, um, this is the very beginning of that sort of like, you know, reform movement. And if we think about sort of the prison abolitionist line that like prisons are based on reform, like that's, that's the stated goal. So you can't reform something that is, you know, meant to be a reform, reformist sort of thing. You know the the doctor in charge of Bertrand and in, in charge of the institution is constantly saying, like his pitch to people is, you know, we will we will improve, we will cure what can be cured, and we will improve what we can improve. And so, you know, he has this very solid, you know, reformist line. And it's interesting to see Bertrand ends up, you know, one of the one of the violent communards effectively ends up institutionalized like this. And you know, there's like. One of the more interesting passages for me was um, towards the end of the Commune, when uh, they're spelling out the the atrocities that the Versailles troops committed. Uh, the, the the writing The writing is uh, there's a quote about Homo Economicus, where he says, "Homo Economicus rose up amid the smoldering ruins and began to flourish again." One man went up and down the street, street after street, with a handcart. At the sight of sight of a body, he would stop, uncover himself. Uncover him, himself piously and mutter a brief prayer. Then he would wave his hat before he put it on again, in order to chase away the flies. And with a rapid and practiced hand, he would strip the corpse of its footgear and throw the boots into his cart. Uh, the harvest was plentiful, and you know I, I think this I think Guy Endor, he really I think gets at what like is being born here.
0: Yeah, um, I, I want to mention about that because it's um, what, the feeling that we get and that's kind of how it ended with the Paris Commune is that afterwards like economical life was able to be born again as it should have been uh, like sort of capitalism asserting itself as it deserves to be in a very, again, in commas which feels almost in a very inverse way almost familiar like suspensions that need to be that that were made because this time not not, not a Paris, not a Paris commune unfortunately but a pandemic that sort of suspended a great deal of things and like the the need the urgency of by the bourgeoisie to reestablish establish this economical going on and it, I think that is definitely something that happened with the commune that like, like the world stopped for a time, or a feeling that like things weren't proper, and that's very fun to to think about because one of the things and that happened in other times too, but I think it happened in the commune as well. Uh, one of the first things that people did was shooting at watches uh, or clocks, uh, like against this industrial, organized capitalist time. So it's like a really Pure and strong and powerful rebellion, a revolution, really. And it, it, it sort of broke down for a time in that place. Like, what was this homo economicus? What was the normal goings on of capitalism? And that had to be reestablished and established twofold after the commune in a way that, which is how these things go historically, so that it could never happen again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the and it's reestablished in that scene through the you know of a man selling the boots from the dead communards, which I think is you know there's some there's a symbolism there, yeah. but you know I think also I think Kristen Ross has written about this like with respect to the Paris Commune, talking about how like the reactionary views of it at the time, so people living in the commune at the time who weren't communards who were you know, a Versailles or some other form of reactionary viewed it as time stopping. But I think what we could see is, you know, is really just that, you know, the, as you're saying, the capitalist time stopping, not necessarily yeah. time itself. And instead, it's a moment where the workers of Paris exerted, you know, exerted agency in a way that is usually precluded of them.
0: Absolutely. Like that. that brings to mind one of my uh, favorite uh, writers and thinkers, which is Walter Benjamin. And he mentions how, instead of like revolution being a process, of like this uh, train speeding up history and advancing, like revolution is actually the pulling on the brakes to derail that train of progress, that train of capitalism. And I feel that while the Paris commune didn't fully derail, (laughs) Uh, it all, it definitely pulled the brakes for a time. and it, it was successful while it lasted, even with all these problems, it it existed. It strength it was strong. And one of the things that it is mentioned briefly on the book, but I definitely want to mention because it's so it is fascinating. It's one of the things that the community did that took so much time and effort. and yet it it, it still, Uh, To my view like one of its strongest achievements, which was the knocking down of the uh, column of Indome uh, Which was basically sort of similar to Roman columns Like the Trajan column and others that celebrate like sort of accomplishments and whatnot But this was of Napoleon and there was a very dorky statue in bronze of Napoleon at the top which was probably made of like um, Egyptian cannons because of those wars uh, so again Napoleon being a deck. <laughs> and they it, it took days it took weeks it took a lot of effort but they did knock down this colossal column and there's so beautiful pictures of, like these working class people like just looking at a, a broken down statue of Napoleon it's really powerful and really beautiful and I just uh, I just had to mention it and it it, it really sort of brings down on like this symbolism on this power of change that like you know th- this is important this is something uh, this war of what we're up against need, this this needed to be done even if it was in you know, a sense of practical waste it, it was essential for the the commune to do so and yeah the the, the reactionaries and the fossilists definitely sort of went against like uh corbe which was sort of the minister of culture and arts of the commune something of the sort and there, there were a lot of parodies and what not, what not. but it's really it's fascinating that it, it it really is one of the more iconic stories from the commune and a, a, a pulling of the brakes against all that was going on It's was like yeah no this these symbols these symbols of domination these symbols of power need to be brought down sad ending to that story is that uh later after the commune they rebuild the fucking column
1: <laughs> yeah and i think they made um i think they tried to make uh corbet pay for it
0: yeah they they, impri- they imprisoned him and with, with sort of exorbitant debts like he he basically died in poverty in another country like it was it was fairly tragic into his life really in that regard like sort of being taxed and imprisoned and i think sent into exile or whatnot it's uh, yeah yeah
1: yeah I think also like in terms of pulling the the break there as you're saying, another like aspect of this of this context is uh like I think this is again Kristen Ross pointed this out is like the Paris Commune was also a rent strike and I think that's another like I think that's become increasingly popular now the idea that you know that's something to organize around to try and yeah as you say pull the br- pull the brake and yeah I don't like it it ends up like the story of the novel here ends up with ends up in reform we end up in a reformatory an institution for Bertrand, and I think that I don't know, I think that speaks to i guess like the birth of reform in in a in the way that I think Marxists usually talk about it.
0: That's a very good insight. I like that.
2: <laughs> I also like the thought like uh, as we we were saying, like we know the fame of this institution, so it's really like. It says a lot about how it it was born, this kind of peculiar moment.
0: Yeah, it's something I was thinking about, and how this reform in in, in this place, in this time, that it's apparently prestigious, and it's a very powerful and honest institution, and uh, Aymar goes to talk to the doctor, and they have this lengthy discussions and whatnot, but... As we see when, when we, we follow a bit the perspective of the doctor in charge, he's like, wait, I, I could disagree with him because they're talking about, like, the trans transition, And I might say, no, but he's a werewolf. He's a literal werewolf. Haven't you seen him? Haven't you paid attention? It's like, no, no, that's nonsense. He must just have some fits or think he's a werewolf. He doesn't really change. Uh, but eventually he's like, wait, if I keep going, I'm going to lose a patient. Uh, when the, a very good paying one. No, no, like, I'll just start agreeing. <laughs> yeah. you, you were doing that, right? So, it, it's, so it's very, like, yeah, he he doesn't care. He literally does not care, the Doctor, and helps in making Aymar care less. Uh, it was very comfortable for Aymar to just put Bertrand there and forget it, and that's kind of what ends up happening. Yeah, I don't think we get an ending to... I'm Amar's story, do we? Uh,
1: I think he just—I think he literally sails off to the colonies, perhaps.
0: Oh yeah, I think he becomes a priest and sails there.
1: Yeah, which is a fascinating end.
2: Yeah, yeah, he 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 really did went full circle, and and I think maybe now, right, you can you can talk about the Amar's plan of basically becoming what Josephine wanted.
1: Are you talking about what his aunt wanted him, like the his the plan his aunt had for him?
2: No, no, I, I was just remembering of you talking earlier about how, like uh, earlier, not like uh, yesterday, that you uh, you said uh, jokingly about how Amar uh, wanted Josephine back, so he basically became like a, a priest just so he could. Be on, on, on like the same situation where where she was first like possessed uh, b- between uh, uh, her comas Yeah, I, so I
1: mean, it is it is like fascinating to think that you know, and I'm sure like with Amar, you know, I, as I was kind of saying earlier, hinting at earlier, like he, because of because of a uh, because Josephine is raped by the Piedmont priest, Amar becomes a priest, which. Yeah. It, is like and to spell this out like specifically we 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 begin with him being sort of a, again in 1848 sort of academic revolutionary to him sailing off to the colonies to be a to be a catholic priest and yeah it's and like i guess what, what what frank was just saying too is like with the with the doctor here you can see how the world that comes into being after the commune in this novel just just makes accommodations for reactionary forces and finds them profitable. Exactly. Like his worldview after this point is just completely enabled in such a, in in a way that's obviously, you know, like as Bruno, you're just saying, you know, he could just become what he has sort of chased all these years in, in a, yeah. in a, in a, in a sort of dark repetition of what we've just seen. Yeah.
0: Like a sick way, Yeah. Yeah. It's a very bleak picture that we have by the end of the novel. We have the massacre of the commune. Like the numbers that Endor uses for like the casualties of the the commune were outdated uh, or are outdated now. So he says like twenty thousand that were just brutally massacred. It doesn't reach that high. I think it's like between six and seven thousand are the more agreed numbers today. But that's, again, that's the brutally executed. It still doesn't take away the, the prisoners, the exiles. Um, the injured. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: I mean, this is the 1870s. They, when you, if you get shot and you survive, you, you lose a limb.
0: <laughs>
1: Basically, yeah.
0: Still, like, okay, it's not that much. It doesn't take away at all from the brutality that's enacted. Like, even Aymar in his reactionary turn... Uh, can't deny that the, the violence of uh, the bourgeoisie and the, uh, the Versailles forces are on a whole other level than anything the commune did. And that's when he starts saying, and that's really, that's bizarre and that's fascinating. Uh, he starts seeing werewolves everywhere. He says like, oh, the, these are the werewolves contaminated by Bertrand. This is the, the violence, this is the madness, this is the destruction. This is the exploitation. Uh, it's what he says about the, the, the person with the card taking the boots. Uh, he says, oh, look, a promising young werewolf.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that also speaks to sort of the sort of the liberal in the sort of more general sense, sort of patholog- pathologization of violence. Uh, I'm butchering that word, but the way liberals view violence as sort of this contagion that spreads.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely and and he it, it just like, even if he he realized that like oh the there are different werewolves, and he he basically wants to help Bertrand out of pity, uh because like oh, what is the the violences and the crimes of a, of one werewolf with all of these running around? So he does it not out of compassion or regret. no, he's just, eh, why not like just have some pity on the on the kid uh, <laughs> who had literally nothing to do personally with what he ended up doing he just you know coast literally
1: really quick there's no there's no awareness on his part that like he could at any point have blood on his hands he's clearly given driven by guilt and shame and fear the whole time but when you read like his sort of like what he's saying and like when we're presented with things that could be his thoughts it's never there's never like an acknowledged there's never like The straight up just sort of i have blood on my hands i need to do something it's always this very convoluted sort of calculus that he's doing
0: yeah Yeah. like at most he's aware of losing control which he tries to avoid at all costs when he can so he he quite literally like bertrand is a victim of circumstances very much beyond his control and he tries to avoid hurting people that he's not directly responsible for doing, but that his body ends up acting on it. So, but Aymar sort of never really gets that. It all ends up feeding into this religious mania, really, where, like, this violence and this... It's all the werewolf. It's the pathology. It's, like, it's this undiscriminated violence and destruction, which... I think kind of proves that he never really got what being the werewolf really meant, which was a literal loss of your own control, your own ideas, your own mind. Like, um, Bertrand himself barely has any memories of when he becomes a werewolf. They're all like, at most of the time, like vague dreams. So it's very, Bertrand is a very tragic hero, really. yeah and i think amars
1: you know never like he's never he can never face up to that loss of control either because you know i think that that's his greatest sort of fear here is the lot the loss of control and i think in a way that that's sort of what's also fueling his sort of drift since 1848 is is the loss of control and it's it's worth pointing out here too that he was like badly injured in the street fighting in 1848 and he's living with the physical realities of that since and i think uh in a like a way that i think would be a daily reminder for him
0: yeah yeah that makes
2: limping since the the fight isn't it
1: was- yeah i think it's i think it's a limp maybe yeah
3: yeah
0: that's that's true
3: yeah and and as as Frank said
1: about the
2: about Bertrand being like the how, how did you say like the, uh, the tragic, tragic hero. hero the tragic hero yeah and I I think that that has a lot to do with like the the bestiality of the 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 figure of the werewolf like it it gets to it, it's really different from something like uh, Dracula which has like uh it it is a mastermind behind a thing that can transform into into a bat or or just have supernatural various powers of flying and doing stuff uh and in this case of the werewolf it's just like it, it's almost like you can't judge any of the of the doings because as you said frank it's like uh Bertrand isn't even remotely like he doesn't even remotely remember those episodes, so it gets to a point where you you can't judge, but at the same time, uh, you almost the, the book almost makes you uh, see the point of Amar as well of being something uncontrollable and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's like it's interesting because for a long time, not even Bertrand himself realizes what's going on. Yeah, it takes. A- in so, so long, and, like, he only really gets it when he runs away towards Paris and he uh, unwantedly hurts his uh, classmate that was going there, too. So even to Bertrand, after everything that had happened, like, until then, to not realize and not be able to understand, uh, you get the sense that, truly, he was out of himself. He had no agency then.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting here, like, the, well, first off, we have the sort of, sort of gothic coming into the the modern era aspect of it, <laughs> but there's also, like, in sort of the traditional Marx, like, you know, in Marx's writings themselves, you know, we have the sort of vampiric nature of capital, in his sort of phrase, and that sort of Marxist kind of horror aspect, but here we have instead of the you know cunning and like thought out actions of like a vampire who's probably either a capitalist or like a formal former nobleman we have bertrand who's like the bastard child of of a of a medieval sort of noble like a lower noble family conceived by by rape and raised by another lower noble family kind of who are live in perpetual fear that that he will be discovered, and I, I feel like that's a very like interesting dynamic throughout as I've talked about. But like, there's also like the way that this I guess plays with the the horror tropes as we know them, and how you know there are several things in this throughout that like today we would find that have like resurfaced recently, like the uh, the theme of him cucking the the heiress's you know fancy boy. Uh, fancy boy boyfriend and i don't know it's just it's just interesting to see these tropes in the novel
2: from the 30s i guess
0: yeah Yeah, totally yeah
2: frank Frank was saying yesterday as well about the the amount of nuance that this book has like at at some moments you think that he's just going to give a ultra simplistic view of something and then he just have those characteristics that like I swear, like, uh, as as right just said, like, if you read this book today and someone said, oh, this book is from 2010, I don't know, something like that, you maybe could believe that it's actually from 2010. Like, it has sort of some bizarre, uh, almost like Gui Andor uh, didn't mind putting uh, really wacky stuff from his head that... Maybe most of people wouldn't write and publish at those times
0: yeah I think I think that speaks a lot to this sort of meetup, which is the the idea, like the gothic, this uh, medieval old family family name Kos, and this sort of the secret conception and the scandal. but then you you have the creature in the city. In the mo- in modernity, you have you have the violence, you have the Paris Commune, so it's literally the sort of the, the Gothic coming into the modern in a very outright way, and that's very interesting because you you do end up with weird results. Which, well, the ending I think is sort of key, which is the, the uh, in the institution, uh, the Trump being institutionalized it, it is definitely. And in that way, it's it's almost sarcastic of the beginning. It's like, oh, it, it's the institution supposed to help him, but it, it is literally worse than the incarceration in the castle, in the Oubliette. So I think that, uh, and, and to add to some of the, the nuance that I find, is that while, while it's intense, it's heavy, it's bleak, it's sad, it's brutal, you never get too much of one thing. Narrator is never really too partial. He's very critical of the Paris Commune, and Aymar himself really even more so. But you never get the sense on the overall storytelling that it's literally just one thing, because then you while well, you acknowledge like, the inner failings of the Commune and the things that didn't work and the foolishness and the attacks, like... It never shies away from saying well and then these massacres happen that were such on another level of brutality that it's almost unbelievable it was bloody quite literally so that is something that's very pleasant very interesting to to read because it's not just one thing and you do get a very elaborate understanding of how like yeah, this this is this is all very tough to get a simple, singular reading from it. That there's various sides to it, and, and the fact that Endor was willing to portray the complexities of the commune through, through all the limitations of Marvel is commendable. Really, it's, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, and we also continually get a sense like for the characters' like own personal histories and how those. Played into like the political decisions they made in an interesting way. Like they're all, they're always informed by class background. But you also, again, you have, um, you have Baral, who, you know, is just this fancy lad who will not, who's just terrified he will, you know, spoil the beauty of Sophie somehow. And then you have Sophie, who's this very bored heiress who wants like an adventure and wants to feel something. And then you have Bertrand, who's the, you know, again, of the bastard child of a uh, of a rape from a nobleman causing havoc in paris and it's just this i don't know that there's a there's a lot of psychology going on here in a very i think kind of leftish way if someone i think, like this is why i wanted to talk about it there's so much to unpack here it just feels like i i don't know where to start sometimes
0: yeah i think i think th- that's kind of the point we're doing the best we can in trying to handle the entire novel because there's there are whole scenes and stories that like there's there's so much packed into them but like we need at least like half an hour to talk about them yeah. because they, they seem to carry so much into it there's a very strong attention to detail in, in the way that many gothic novels did uh, to have sort of very parallel stories that like about this particular character or what he was doing at that time, but that really don't contribute too much to the story at large. Uh, but it's, it also adds to the charm and the interest and how much the b- book actually does. So we unpacking it the best we can in various ways, it's, it's a part of, well, working with an elaborate piece of literature.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, first, want to say thank you for talking about it because I realized when I suggested it that this was going to be—it's a very good book to read, but it's also a challenge to talk about.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I, I realized that. I was like yes, it Was like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to do this. It was like, huh, it's going to be a bit rough, I guess. That's a yeah. lot. Oh, okay, then. <laughs> Which I mean, fair.
2: Yeah, because it's it's like I said in the the beginning of the episode, like we tried to to record yesterday, and now we had uh, one more day to think about it. And as I tried to think about it, I was just like, even more like It's like I I don't know exactly where to start, like to to think about this book, to think about the stories, and maybe that has to do with the fact. And one of the things that I liked the most of the book, which was the fact that it's really rich uh, in the in the way to to uh, to tell those stories, even if it's not it's not the the main story or the main characters. Gondor uh, utilizes lots of like little uh, metaphors, like uh, small. Small little storyettes that he tells to to uh, have a sentimental or aesthetical purpose inside the the story, and that kind kind of sets up the whole mood of the book. So maybe like even as I don't know if you write already uh, read a book called The Invisible Cities, which is basically uh, a book about little metaphors and and uh yeah the calvino book exactly yeah and uh, and i don't know i maybe it's a really gigantic stretch but i reread the the invisible cities last semester and every time that that andar utilized like a little story to talk about how those characters were feeling or something like that it 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 had like uh, a really close uh, style and vibe to it that I remember from 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 *The Invisible Cities*. Like the way to uh, sort of acclimatize the scene and the and the, t- the characters at, at the moment that he wanted.
1: Yeah. Well. Well. One second. We have to look. I have to get the title right. It reminds me of another Calvino story, though. I can't remember the title. Oh, *The Baron in the Trees*. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say structurally, I think oh. you're really right that like. Calvi- like Calvino's Invisible Cities has a lot in common with uh, The Werewolf of Paris I think though that the Baron in the Trees in his portrayal of in this case we have a sort of uh, eccentric I guess would be the right word sort of eccentric nobleman's son who like, when he's like, like, like eight years old takes a vow that he will never leave the trees he's never going to touch the ground again and this of course takes place, I believe, during the events of the uh the French Revolution. So there's the there's that same overlap there. But, yeah. you know, we're seeing but we're also, you know, getting that same kind of class dynamics perspective in a really interesting and, and comical way in that case. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think Calvino's a really interesting an interesting parallel to think about. 'Cause, you know, he really is someone, you're right, who um can write things that aren't exactly applicable to the plot, but he has such a good understanding of style and the way like books are read, I guess, to make it work in, a, in an interesting way.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really good parallel.
0: I, I like it. I, I did not expect that, but I'm like, yeah, I'm down for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I totally
0: agree. <laughs> Speaking of which, there's at least one more thing that I just... If only to mention briefly for, for a friend of mine as well, who works in this particular thing. She works with gothic food, uh, which is very fun and interesting. Uh, and there's a particular scene where, during Imar's investigations, he runs into a group of various sort of noblemen. One with which him... He, or, or I don't think... Were they nobles or were they radicals? I'm half confused now. Uh, are you talking
1: about when Amor met the guys who were eating the, like, squirrel?
0: Yes.
1: I think those were, um, like, upper-class radicals.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, So yeah, the, exactly. So that,
1: that's the trajectory for Amor, if he hadn't gone on a, sort of the reactionary path.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he he runs into these uh, uh, upper-class uh, academics and radicals that are just like they're basically cooking uh, unseemly animals so to speak. Uh, so rats I
3: don't think... Raccoons?
0: Yeah, raccoon uh, and, and the, even like a dog uh, that's why um, uh, they, he ended up running into them. He was talking about oh what about the accident with the dog and it's like oh he's expecting uh, might as like, oh, he's going to talk about the werewolf, but he's, like, hiding about the story all night. And he's like, what all about the dog? It's like, oh, we're sorry if the dog was yours or whatnot, but at least we ate him together, and it was fun. <laughs> and what is very, other than the fact that the whole scene is completely wacky, and just sort of, what is going on? Uh, at the end, of like, is it rat or Raku which is like, tell everyone, because there are food shortages because of the war and whatnot. It's like oh, tell everyone, rat is good. It's like, oh my god.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's like a historical thing though in the commune is they ran out of food so they were eating, like, rats. But what's what's oh, interesting yeah. about this scene is that it's basically noblemen or rich doctors and academics trying to fancy it up, and that's sort of their contribution to the struggle, which is <laughs> very bizarre.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, uh... uh uh, validate this type of food of being like oh this can be fancy this can be great just as everything else is like a gourmet rat which is very odd
1: yeah there are so many absurd scenes in this that i feel like someone could do a really campy version of it as a movie yeah it's just like there's so many scenes like that where it's just i don't know the absurdity is just cranked all the way up but it's presented in the in the traditional horror way but i think now there's also the sort of campy way to do it too which i i don't know that was just running through my mind throughout reading this
0: yeah oh that makes perfect sense so uh we are running like i think for about an hour and a half or something like that yeah so uh i I mean like great stuff obviously um just kind of wanted to ask like go around a bit if anyone has any sort of other ideas or things that we didn't talk that much about, so we start heading towards a conclusion. So I don't have too much to edit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm but... sorry. No, no. Oh, no. I know uh, the feeling.
2: <laughs> no, and now and I was going to talk exactly that. Like, if, if we if, if we continue to try to poke the story all around it and try to find something to talk, uh, we will find like a team that we were talking about now, but the, the episode will get like five hours long. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything like really specific to talk about. Uh, I, I really like another thing that I wanted to talk about Gyandor writing. I really like the scene of the hunt and and the sort of like the way he utilizes terror uh, in the in that scene with like the, the werewolf when they are in, in the, I, I believe it's like the, as you said, like the South of France and they are in the property and the hunter needs to find the the, the wolf and it, it I mean I, I always say to Frank that I, I think I'm a, a, a little bit numb with with horror stories because I have read and seen so many things that uh, when it's like a uh, like a story with suspense and with something that is not really like dark I, I I'm', I'm it's a bit hard sometimes to actually be scared of the story. But the, the way that Gyandor writes this and the scene with the werewolf going between like the shadow and the light and just tracking him and he's in the middle of a like a playing field without any trees and completely alone. I I mean I, I really like the style of, of terror that is that is utilized in this book.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I just want to say, like, this is a book that I really think people should read. I talk about a lot of books, like, either on Twitter or whatever, that, like, I think are interesting, but I wouldn't recommend people actually read them. But this is a book I think everyone should really try and read. It's really up there in terms of, like, leftist novels. Like, for me, it is honestly up there in terms of leftist novels with, like, some of the stuff, like, Le Guin wrote or something. Yeah. But um, I just wanted to say... That, you know, what you were just saying about Calvino is very interesting. And I'd really be interested. Like, there's a book called The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question by um, Nick Hubble, I want to say their name is. Um, But I'd really be interested in someone doing an academic study about this book. Because there's so much here. And I think there's a lot to be, like, unpacked. Like, especially if you wrote about it in relation to Calvino and Invisible Cities and um, The Baron in the Trees. But uh, that's just... Oh, no my my main recommendation is just read this book because it is very good
2: yeah
0: yeah a- absolutely <laughs> if it's fine for everyone I- I- i'm probably going to do a very short monologue as i usually end up doing with <laughs> the left okay page. And, okay uh, is that fine for you too right go off yeah okay so us like we definitely recommend it like many books we we approach but we don't necessarily the, the readings are usually interesting, but, you know, not always uh, worth reading, or if you're not that interested, this one really carries a weight of its own time and a weight of someone trying to approach this history. Like, you can really tell how much invested uh, indoor was in portraying the history of the commune, in portraying the history of of all that was going on in france at that time the effects of the franco-prussian war what was the build-up to the paris commune and then the various intricacies in it there are a lot of different and interesting stories at the end of the day i'd say that it is it's a very bouhique it's a very difficult it's a very intense read and a very good story uh, and it, and yet it really does help us think through very interesting themes like How do we think about being uh, an academic or being uh, revolutionary during these times, like, which is all about how we see Aymar. How do we see like the various working class people, like in which we see in the, the very peculiar figure of Bertrand and all other victims. And how do we see these rich families, these nobles? We see there's a very large and ample class portrayal in the novel too. So there's just so much to take into account that like what we did a bit and i i, I try to do um we try to get through most of the te- themes and of various ideas uh <laughs> but it's something that i don't know maybe we'll come back to it maybe we'll eventually talk some more about it uh, there's definitely a lot more but it, as a, a way of both connecting with each other like doing it with it with roy it, it, it has been fantastic Roy, really a pleasure to to have recommended this and suggested us yeah. doing this together i uh, yeah. can't thank you enough really okay.
1: yeah thank you for talking to me about it because i really wanted someone to talk about it with since i read it like a year or two ago now it's just it's just one of those books that you read and you're like I i need to talk about this one <laughs>
0: Well, that was kind of a, a, a part of a project to enable people to talk about stuff they like. So, you know, I'm glad to be uh, yeah, doing thank it thank Our uh, pleasure. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic novel. It, it's, it, it gives a lot. It gives a lot to one of our favorite themes, which comes up occasionally. Nobles are horrible. <laughs> uh, I love how that comes up so much. Uh, yeah. So, you know. Also the food, there's just, there's so much. I'm going to cut myself off because I could go all night, uh, but I shouldn't. (laughs) But yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Roy, uh, thank you for doing this together with us. Where can people find you?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I do the Marxist Poetry Podcast at Marxist Poetry on Twitter. Uh, Yeah, so just listen to that. Um, I don't think I, I wouldn't say the discussions are slightly different there because we're talking about poetry usually. So, if poetry is your
2: thing, check that out. Yeah,
1: yeah,
3: and, yeah
2: thank and, you. And, and soon enough, we will do an episode about poetry with Roy as well.
1: Yes, I can't wait. Really, <laughs> it'll be good.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, like it, it, it goes both ways. Like we, we, we want to join on the po- on on that part of literature as well. Like we do a couple of things on poetry here and there, but like the work Roy does is very valuable very important and sort of like. Proclaiming and marking poetry is sort of like, no, this can be really powerful. And this has been historically very important and very radical. So definitely check out Roy's work. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, you can find us too on at Left PageBot on Twitter and uh, at patreon.com forward slash Left Page. I have a couple of things there. We're laden behind on a few others, but I should be able to. I have some time, some more time right now to add. Uh, to it then uh so yeah i think that's it from us thank you yeah. thank you so much thank you so much roy like it has really been a pleasure to to share the, this work and to share this discussion with you it's been a really great pleasure Yeah,
1: thank you no thank you thank you for having me it's been a lot of fun
0: so thank you everyone so much for listening and
2: to the next one
0: bye <laughs>
3: For a run too low I'm walking On the southern stream. Get to the river For a run too low